Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. How many, how many of you saw eight days ago uh, Deion Sanders give his speech to uh, the Colorado Buffalo team that he just took over? The speech, I'm coming, it went viral. I got one hand up, got two hand, three, can I have four? A few of us. Uh, do, you know, uh, do you know who Deion Sanders is? Raise your hand. Do you know what football is? Raise your hand. <laughs> do you know who you are? I'm going to get 100% here. Okay. All right. No, that's even less. Went backwards. Well, do yourself a favor. I don't, I don't know what you're going to take away from this message, but at least go do that. Go watch this video. And he, in this, Deion Sanders is a very charismatic person. He's very successful, one of the all-time greats in the NFL. And um, he, he's become a coach. He's become quite a, a successful head coach, taking a program and lifting it. And now he's being... He's brought into uh, Colorado, Colorado uh, Buffaloes, and they've become a bit of a doormat in the in the college football world. They were one in eleven, um, which if you don't know about football, that's not a very good record. And so we, um, so he comes in and, and he gives his speech, and throughout his speech, he kept saying, "I'm coming, I'm coming." And, and he, would, he would communicate what he meant by that. And, and, and a lot of it was like, man, things are going to change. There's going to be transformation. We're going we're gonna to win. We're going to be uh, taken from the ash heap, and we're going to be brought up to new heights. And he had these great, great promises. But he also came with a threat. He said, some of you sitting in those chairs will not be sitting in these chairs when I come, because I'm coming. He kept saying that over and over again. And and went on to describe what that meant. You won't, if you're wearing a hoodie, you won't be wearing that hoodie. Wearing gold earrings, you're not going to be wearing those gold earrings. You're wearing a hat, my meaning, you're not going to. He went on and, and talked about what he expected. I'm coming. And I'm, I bring this up because Matthew is, uh, throughout his gospel, in particular though here, he, he's talking about how Jesus uh, has come. And there's implications. It's, it's great news. There's going to be um, liberation. You're, uh, oh, Israel, you're going to be brought from uh, the ash sheep and you're going to be, uh, all the prophecies are going to begin to be fulfilled and you're going to be uh, coming out of uh, this, this, this low place to a high place. So it was, it was this great redemption, these great promises, but it was also a threat. And we see this in, um, most notably in Herod. He understands as crazy as he was, he, he understands the implications of this coming king. And uh, we're going to take a, a look at, at this. And Matthew is, is, is he, he starts out, one of the things he does, there's layers to the chapter, this chapter, but one of the things he does, he's, he's standing in the center ring and he's calling out these, these two kingdoms. And he's like in this corner wearing Roman red, we have the one who calls himself the king of the Jews, and in this corner, weighing eight pounds and six ounces, cuddly but still omnipotent, he, he, we have not the one who calls himself the king of the Jews, but the one who was born the king of the Jews, and he lays out his case. He lays out his case. Are you going to go the way of the maniac? Or are you going to go the way 
of the Messiah. And like Capital One, he wants this to be the easiest decision in the history of decisions. And so he lays out his case and over and over and over again. Are you going to consider Jesus uh, the contender? And, and, God, and Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he points out, he goes to great lengths to say, hey, this is the one, this is the promised one. The people of God have been waiting a really long time uh, for this Messiah. And how many you know when you've been waiting a really long time for something, you need some extra convincing? Uh, you know, I thought this was going to happen. I thought this was going to happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century. But over and over, uh, Matthew is communicating, this is the guy. This is the one that we've been waiting for. In fact, in his gospel, and we, we read it in this chapter, it's in chapter one as well, and about 20 times in his gospel. He says something to the effect, this was said to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He wanted to say over and over, go, this is the guy. This is the guy. Look at Jesus. He kept his promise. Look at Jesus. God kept his promise. God kept his promise. And, and, and this is what happens in the genealogy, which we'll look at on Christmas Eve. Invite all your friends. It's going to be amazing. Um, and even though his, his genealogy was a bit crooked, and we'll see how crooked it, it was here in a couple of weeks, even through that, God kept his promise. And in this, he wants to encourage uh, the people of God. And he wants to encourage us, and he does it in a couple different ways. He, he talks about prophecies, and he talks about patterns. He mentions two prophecies in particular. One is that he would be born of a virgin. This was prophesied two, excuse me, 700 years before the birth of, birth of Christ, that he would be born in Bethlehem 500 years before the birth of Christ. He points to these prophecies to say, this is the one, this is the one. And he also points to patterns. If we were to, if I was to ask you, like, what are the two most important events in American history? We may have some de debate. We may have some disagreement. We may not land on the two most important events in American history. But if you were to ask the, um, the, the average Jewish person at this moment in time near, around the birth of Jesus, what are the two most important events in Jewish history? Um, they would have come to agreement. The two most important events were the exodus and the exile. I mean, you read the Old Testament, uh, and it's, it dominates the pages, the, the historical context, the exodus and the exile. The exodus, when, when God freed them from slavery they were born into. The exile, when they were freed from slavery that they chose through disobedience. And Matthew is pointing these out in, in an effort to point them to Christ, to say, this is a guy, this is a guy, this is a guy, this is a guy. Um, in Matthew 2, uh, verses 13 to 15, it says, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him because he was a threat, right? Remember? And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, John Stott, the theologian, explains this pattern um, really well, so I'll let him do the talking. It says, as Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus would become a refugee in Egypt under the rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the River Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, 
So Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. As Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of, Be- the Mount of the Beatitudes, the mounds of the Beatitudes, his disciples, he gave the disciples a true interpretation and amplification of the law. So the pattern here that, that Matthew's wanting us to pay attention to is just as God called out people from Egypt uh, with a great demonstration of his power and redemption, so he would once again, uh, with great power, redeem his people from his sin, uh, not just through the servant Moses, but through his son, Jesus. And this child comes out of Egypt and will lead a great and glorious exodus of God's chosen people. And this is the pattern that Matthew is pointing to. He points to the exile, he, excuse me, he points to the exodus and he points to the exile. This is like in verse 20, and a, there's a reference there to Jeremiah, specifically uh, Jeremiah 31. I know I'm throwing a lot of Old Testament at you, but it'll come together, I promise. He compares what Herod did with the toddlers to the days when families were torn apart in the exile of Babylon. And in Jeremiah 31, he, he specifically mentions Rachel. And we saw that actually in the text as well. And, and Rachel besides being my wife. Rachel is a great matriarch of of the Jewish people. And she's famous, um, very famous matriarch. And she died giving birth to her son, Benjamin. And um, in childbirth, she takes on this symbolic role for God's people. She is known as the sorrowful mother for Israel. And and in the passage we read, which is a a quote from Jeremiah 31, Um, she's in lamentation, she's weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted for her children because her children are no more. But then in verse 16, it says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back from your own country. Matthew, in pointing to the exile, is doing at least two things. He's saying that God is at work even in the worst times, in the most difficult times, God is working his redemptive plan. There have been horrible things in the past and there's horrible things happening right now. Families are losing their children. But even in that, God is at work. These are dark days. God rescued us in the past. He'll rescue us in the future. He's also saying the great exile is with us. It is It has begun. The end is upon us. They've been waiting to be brought out. I mean, they were brought out of Babylon, but they were still kind of under uh, the rule of other nations. And, And they lived with these promises. The promises that they lived with is that the nations would come to their king. This was the thing that they lived with year after year. Isaiah 60 talks about um, this and and other places as well, that the nations would come to the light of their dawn, dawn and foreign kings would come and bow down to their king, the king of kings. But up to this point, the exact opposite had happened. It wasn't just that the nations didn't come to them, but they were scattered among the nations. It wasn't just that foreign kings did not come to worship their king, but they were forced to bow down to foreign kings. How many of you have ever received like maybe like a promise of God or prophetic word or something like that? Like the exact opposite has happened. Someone comes along and says, I just believe, brother, I believe, sister, that God's going to bring you through a time of rest. And then all hell breaks loose. (laughs) This is what they were living with, not just for a few years or a few decades, but quite a few centuries. 
And up to this point, they had not lived, they have not lived in the goodness of God. But what do we see in this passage? We see these men from afar bring gifts to pay homage to their king. The exile is over and the promise is fulfilled because the nations are now worshiping the king of kings. That's what's beginning to happen. In, in um, Matthew points out these prophecies and these patterns as tangible things to, to encourage us and to bolter our faith and to say, this is a guy, this is a guy. One of the more famous of the 12, 12 disciples that is, is Thomas, doubting Thomas. He's in pop culture because he's the guy who, well, he doubted. He didn't have faith and, you know, don't be a doubting Thomas. And he was the one who says, unless I touch the wounds on his hand and his side, I won't believe. And so Jesus appears and, and, he, and he tells Thomas to reach out his hand and then he slapped it away. No, he didn't do that. He, uh, that's what I would do. And so he let him touch his side. He let him touch his hands. And, and this is what these prophecies and, and patterns are like. We, it's like being able to touch the, the wounds of Jesus, being able to have a tangible expression of, of God's goodness and his faithfulness to, to encourage us to say, this is the guy. This is, I mean, he's, he's wanting to make it so easy for us. And that's actually what we do here every week when we come together on Sunday or or we, come, we gather in a community group, or just over coffee 101. We're trying to encourage each other in the faithfulness of God, that, that he is faithful, that he is, he is good, even in dark times, that he will rescue us, and this is what we have here. And so Matthew is saying, hey, you've got these, these two, these two uh, kings, so to speak. You've got the Messiah, and you have the maniac, and he tries to make it easy for us to choose. And um, you know, do you, want the, do you want the one who slaughters children or do you want the one who welcomes children? Do you want the one who requires in his insecurity that his subjects die for him? Little fact about Herod, he killed his three sons because he saw them as a threat. He killed his wife, killed his mother, killed his mother-in-law. Um, on the day of his death, he knew there'd be rejoicing that he died. And so he ordered um, the slaughter of a bunch of prominent leaders, I think upwards of 5,000 people in Jerusalem, so that on the day of his death, um, there would not be celebration, there'd be weeping. Um, do you want the one who insecure, in insecurity requires that his subjects die for him? Or do you want the one who in great love was willing to die for his subjects? Who on the cross did not order the murder of those who are against him, but he's prayed blessing over them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do as he took their sins into his body on that cross. Which one do you want? This should be easy for us. This should be easy easiest decision in the history of making decisions. But if we're honest, um, that's not the way that we go. There's three responses that you see uh, in three different groups and um, that I think represent us. And, and I'll close with this, these thoughts. 
In, in Matthew 2, we, first of all, we see uh, an apathetic response. This comes from the church folk, the religious people. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. By the way, I mean, that's just the height of an insecure leader. If he's having a bad day, everybody's going to have a bad day. If he's troubled, everybody's going to be troubled. And that's what was happening. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I don't know my Bible. I want to know where this, you know, tell me what the prophecies say. Tell me where this person is going to be born. And like eager Jeopardy contestants, they, they get in and they give the answer. They told them in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet. They don't even look at the Bible. They just quote it to them. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. This was basic knowledge for them. They knew facts about God, but they were unmoved by those facts. Magi come from a far distance looking for him. The maniac is even looking for him. But the religious people were indifferent and went right back to their books. It's like what Paul says in 2 Timothy, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Coming to services, doing the right thing, but just unmoved by who got apathetic. And this exists in the church today because it exists in us in small ways and in big ways. And we know things and we do little with it. There's a reason why the church at large has a reputation for hypocrisy. It's because there's data. But the good news is it doesn't have to be true of you. The good news of the gospel is that we can change. We don't have to be afraid about what's true about us. We have this thing in our groups, our community groups, that we, we want to go beneath the line of shame, meaning like we're not trying to put on a front. We're not trying to pretend that we're something else. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be afraid of what's true of us because what is truer is that Jesus Christ not only came to forgive us of our sin, but to break the power of us, the sin in our lives. We can be honest about where we're at and say, you know what? I just don't. It's not passion in my heart. We pray for me. Yeah, I just, I, I'm just going through the motions. Will you pray for me? I don't know that I've heard the voice of God in a while. Will you, will you pray for me? Man, I, I, I just seem to keep doing the same things over and over again. Will you, will you pray for me? The outsider, the wise men, they were humble and hungry. They came from a long way off. The insiders were indifferent. And let me just say that for those who feel like you're on the outside looking in, like you don't even understand half the sermon. You're like, you're going all over Jeremiah and whatever and Exodus and I don't know what you're talking about. And you don't really have answers to the questions, but I just want to say that you are so needed here. You are so needed here because there's a lot of apathetic insiders in this church and we need to see the light bulb go off in your heart and in your head. We need to see that your hunger is needed here. Your questions are needed here. Don't decide that you don't belong because you don't have the answers to the questions. In fact, sometimes it's, the, it's those who have few answers, but lots of questions are more helpful than the ones that have all the answers, but few questions. You're needed here. The second thing you see 
is that you can respond with apathy or you could respond with hostility. At times we respond with hostility to the news that Jesus is king, that he's king over our finances, he's king over our sexuality, he's king over our politics, he's king over our preferences, he is king over our lives. Let us not pretend that there's only one maniac in this story. Let us not pretend there's only one person who's crippled with insecurity, afraid to lose control and power over his life. There's more than one Herod in this story. Let's not pretend that Jesus is only a threat to Herod, but he's not a threat to us. He is absolutely a threat. Us. He, is a, he is a threat to our, to our over-desire for comfort. He is a threat to our over-desire for personal ambition. He is a threat to our desire for autonomy, for control, even over our very lives. At least Herod knew that. He's coming. And he's got good news. But he's a threat. He's a threat. Martin Luther said this, man is not able by nature to want God to be God. Indeed, he wants himself to be God, and he does not want God to be God. Finally, we we see this response with humility. You see a response of humility and submitted lives and worshipful lives. And I'm glad I see that response among us as well. And these magi, wise men, if you will, are are a picture of the grace of God who surrendered themselves to be God. And I don't know about you. I I mean, I think the the magi, I mean, they're my favorite in in the story. I know they usually get about fourth billing in Christmas plays. Um, uh, But they're very fascinating um, people to take a look at because they're kind of surprising. But there's a reason why Matthew puts them in there. Um, We basically have all of our, most of us, our knowledge of the Magi, the wise men, come from a nativity scene and a song, We Three Kings. And, um, but there wasn't, we're not even really sure if there were three. Uh, we know that there was at least two. There might have been as many as eight or 12. Um, but we say there's, the song says three kings because there were three gifts. Um, but if you get three gifts at Christmas, doesn't mean they come from three people. Uh, sometimes they come from two people, and sometimes they come from eight people. <laughs> hey, let me put my name on that card. Anyway, the, uh, they weren't kings. They, the assumption is they're kings because they, uh, they had such expensive gifts. These gifts were so expensive. They're like they had to be royalty. And, um, but they weren't kings. They were astrologers. Um, they weren't from the Orient. Um, they were not from the Far East. They were from the Middle East. And when they came, they, they didn't come to Jesus when he was a baby. They came when he was at least two months, upwards of two years. So he doesn't even belong in the nativity scene, the, the wise men. So I'm, I, I realize right now the foundation of your faith is being shattered. But <laughs> there's a reason why Matthew puts him in there. Um, I mean, it just highlights the grace of God. First of all, God is over nature, and he controls the stars, and these wise men looked at the stars for direction, and God even used that to speak to them, and that's the way God is. 
God says in 2 Samuel that he devises many ways so that the banished ones would not die. And that's what he does. He, 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 he devises ways, shows the grace of God. They were the wrong race. They weren't from the Orient. They're probably some, you know, Jordan, Syria, Babylonia, Persia is a popular one. They were not the right race. They were, they were racially outsiders. They were also morally outsiders. Astrology was strictly forbidden in the Jewish people. But God comes to them in their grace. And they're the ones that ding, 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 ding. They get, they're the ones that get it right. And they, and they, they bow low, not, not, just in the, not just in giving, which they do, and not just in singing a few songs, but I love the picture that we get with these guys. They, they demonstrate true worship. It's humility. They fall to the ground. They sacrifice. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to re-gift this gift I didn't really like, and you know, here you go, Jesus, and here's my leftovers. They found the best that they had, which is why we think they're kings. They had sacrifice coupled with the distance that got them there. True worship is also formative and transformative. It's true worship is formative and transformative as you continue to see something as worthy and worth it, as worthy and worth it. He is worthy, he is worth it. He is worthy, he is worth it. That changes you, that forms you, that transforms you, that disciples you. Whatever you give your time, your money, your affection, your days, your dollars, that forms you, that transforms you, that disciples you. We see this here. You know, if you give your time, your money, your heart to stuff, you're being discipled by materialism. If you give your, your time, your money, your heart, your affections to a, a political ideology, you are being discipled by that ideology. If you give it to a career, you're being discipled. You're being formed. This is worthy. This is worth it. This is worthy. This is worth it. That is forming you. That is shaping you. Because notice, notice here that they... They are shaped by this. They did not go back the same way that they came. They went back a different way. And that's what happens when you really encountered him, when you go low, when you humble yourself, you're, you're sacrificing, you're worshiping, and you are being transformed. They took a different route, new patterns, new rhythms. It is not business as usual. It is different. Something happened, and they heard his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And they listen. They heard the voice of God. And they listened. They were transformed. They did not go back the same way. So we have these responses. And I, I want you to take some time to take a moment here to consider maybe where you land. I mean, I think if we're honest, we can... Probably find a mixture of the three. Um, we feel apathetic. Are we hostile. Are we surrendered? It's worth noting that the indifferent eventually become hostile, where we no longer just want to ignore Jesus, but we want to kill him. The scribes and Pharisees ignored. Jesus as a baby. They killed him as a 33-year-old man. Whereas apathy does not lead to faithfulness. It leads to hatred. Because Jesus is a threat. 
He's a threat that gets in the way of anything that will rob you of your ultimate joy. And you and I are the biggest enemies of ourselves. So when he comes, he comes and he cleans up. The trajectory of apathy is not orthodoxy, it's apostasy. And that's what we see here. I mean, even like, oh, I, I, I choose the Messiah. I wouldn't choose the maniac, really? Okay, so in, in, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the final week of his life, he gets palm branches. You're the man, you're the man, you're the man, you're the man, you're the Messiah, you're the one. We love you, we want you. When the chips were down in Matthew 27, so when they gathered, Pilate said, whom do you want? The maniac, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ, that is the Messiah. And they said, Barabbas. The king has come. And it, it is truly great tidings of great joy, but in that and that uh, song we sang, Joy of the World, says, let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Prepare for what? Prepare for him to change things. You have a new center, a new priority. It's not business as usual. You're going to be changed. You're going to be different. You're not going to be in control of your life. You're going to give up that control, and you're going to be better for it. Do we follow the path of surrender, humility, letting go, sacrifice, or do we follow the path that leads ultimately to insecurity and anger and rage and threat? Jesus is amazing. Everything about him is true. As we go through Matthew, we're going to go through Matthew most of next year. He's just going to be pointing to one. He is the one. He is the one. He is the one. A new king has come. Things are different. He's going to say over and over again, he is worthy and he's worth it. But you have to decide. You have to decide. Am I going to see Jesus as a threat in my life? Or am I, is he someone I'm going to surrender to with humility, face on the ground, sacrifice, and change. There's no place in the middle. You won't stay there long. You'll, choose, you'll go one way or the other. You won't stay there long. Don't stay there today. Why don't you stand? Jesus, we... Um, This is amazing, like you came as a baby. You came to us in humility. You came not to lord over, but to come low, showing us the path to ultimate living. God, I just pray for the grace to, 
pray for the, the grace to walk humbly. God, I want to root out hostility, desire to control. I want to root out apathy. God, I want to I want to be surrendered. I pray for that grace over our lives. Lord, in this season, as we consider what it means that you came 2,000 years ago, as we consider that you're coming back, you've given us a work to do to herald the good news. God, it was good news to these intellectual elites of the day, these magi. And it was good news to the low shepherds and everyone in between. It's for all. God, pray for those who feel like an outsider. God, your grace is so amazing that you reached to the far places of the universe and you drew them to your son with a star. You're drawing people to yourself in your grace and your mercy. And I just pray that your love would surround them right now, that it's, it's not about their performance and who they are and what they've done. That just leads to insecurity and apathy. But God, when we trust in you, what you've done on behalf, Lord, it leads to confidence and humility. And I pray for that. Lord, we just declare, we declare right now that you are worthy and you're worth it. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worth it.